I want you to imagine a world where the story of Joseph goes wrong. In this world, Joseph doesn't rise to power. He dies as a nameless slave in prison. 400 miles to the northeast, his 11 brothers are are desperately looking for food due to this unprecedented famine in the land, and they can find none. Child by child, each one of their children die of starvation. Their, Their father, Jacob, dies of starvation. One by one, the brothers bury each other until there's no brother left to bury at all. Imagine a world where there's no sons of Israel, where there's no nation of Israel, which means that there's no witness to the nations, where there's no priests, no sacrifices for sin, no kings, no kingdom. Of course, then there's no anointed one, there's no Mashiach, there's no Messiah, which means there's no cross and there's no resurrection of the dead. No forgiveness of sins, no gospel, just a world with sin getting worse and worse. A world at war with God and with each other. A world consigned to hell. Boy, aren't you glad the story doesn't, <laughs> doesn't go like that. J.R.R. Tolkien, he coined the term, have you heard it before, eucatastrophe, E-U, the prefix good, the good catastrophe, or the joyful the, the joyful catastrophe. And by that, he, he said that every one of, every great story follows that, that pattern where you have a, a, a tragedy that eventually leads to great joy, a tragedy mid-story that, just like Joseph's here, a betrayal that leads to the salvation of many people. That's how every great story is told, and that's why there's the drama and then the happy ending. God takes what Joseph's brothers intended for evil and he gives us an ending that is better than we could have imagined had it been written any differently. And we come to the climax of that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. When Joseph heard this, he wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. Again, a reference to the dream. He fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, one of his sons. And Joseph saw 
The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from, the, from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. If you've ever watched somebody suffer through a traumatic injustice, something truly terrible, maybe it didn't doesn't have to be on the lines at the level of Joseph kind of suffering, but nevertheless, somebody who has gone through something thoroughly unjust and traumatizing. Have you seen that before? You know uh, how they're never the same again. They live with chronic anxieties. There's a knock at the door, and or there's a phone number that shows up on their cell phone. They're, un, they're not familiar with that number, and they begin to worry. What is, who's there? And what do they want with me? What, will this happen to me again? I don't know if you've ever, I'm sure you've seen somebody suffer injustice before, and they really do become paranoid. They're, the little men out there are really after, to, after me to get me. They don't sleep well for the rest of their lives. They live with chronic insomnia. They, the, the, the psychological scars run very deep, don't they? And it's good to remember this when we read this section in the, in the, at the end of Genesis because in this passage, it looks so easy for Joseph. He makes the forgiveness of his brothers look so cotton-picking easy. He says, guys, don't worry, I, I forgive you. Uh, it's almost as if it's a piece of cake, but we know better. The, the essence of forgiveness, to forgive, we've said this before, to forgive is to suffer. All forgiveness is a form of suffering. All forgiveness is a, counts, a canceling of a debt that is truly owed to you. Jesus speaks about human sin in, in those terms. As a debt, when somebody wrongs us, there is this unavoidable sense that they owe us something. That something is a moral debt. If you let me borrow, or if I let you borrow my car, and then you get in a fender bender and you return it back to me with a broken right front headlight, somebody's going to have to pay for that. Either that's going to be it's going to be you, or it's going to be me. But that debt, that cost, doesn't vanish into thin air. Somebody has to pay. Either you pay the $100 repair bill or, or I pay it, but someone has to absorb that cost. Forgiveness is us absorbing the cost, us saying, I will not make you pay for the 20 years of my life that I spent rotting away in prison. Forgiveness is always a form of suffering. I won't get even. I won't make you pay. I won't choose vengeance. I won't get anything out of this other than the increased pain of absorbing yet one more loss. 
I think it's important to remember that as we read this passage because you ask the question, what, what did this cause, what did this cost Joseph, this forgiveness? What kind, what level of a debt this, did this cost him? If you return to me a, a broken front headlight, that's one thing. If you return to me a, a car that is absolutely and completely totaled, what happens when you return to me a car with my daughter in the back seat who doesn't survive? Like in all three of those, that involves absorbing a cost, right? But one of those is a debt that, that you, you live with for the rest of your life. It is an ongoing loss that you have to bear. And every day for the rest of your life, you have to make the conscious decision to forgive them. And every day for the rest of your life, that is the most difficult part of living, if you've ever had to go through that. So here's a question. Is there anybody in your life whom who owe you a debt that you haven't absolved. And it could be a child. It could be, you know, a parent. Well, I know as, as soon as I ask that question, you start to do a little bit of the mental calculus. You're like, mm, uh, no, no, <laughs> no. There is that person, but, but no. If you, it's interesting because you actually, if you do it, you realize no, there's nobody that I haven't forgiven. Well, that's our knee-jerk reaction because as Christians, we know how great is the obligation of us to forgive. And it's almost as if we can't admit to the unforgiveness in our lives. You can't, you can't face up, it, up to it. As Christians, we know we're supposed to forgive. This is an enormous obligation. And yet, we don't want to admit when we haven't forgiven them what are, here are a couple subtle things that we do in order to exact repayment out of people who we have forgiven. First, we, uh, we tend to be very critical of them, like hypercritical. We, uh, we tend to be demanding or controlling, more demanding or controlling of them than we are towards other people. Whoever it is what, that we feel like they owe us something, we are far less gracious towards them and their, their, blub, their uh, blubbers and flubbers, and we're far more critical. And sometimes we find biting and cutting remarks naturally coming out of us towards them. And sometimes we bring up things, past transgressions, things in the past that 15 and 20 years ago that they did to us, and we bring it up in a fight. We throw it in their face. Remember the time when you... And all the while, if you do the mental calculus, you say there's not a single person in the world today that I haven't forgiven. But there are all of these subtle and, and unconscious actions that we take to exact repayment out of people. Now, I think that forgiveness is a promise. You will not bring this offense up again or use it against them again. I mean, when you pay off a debt that's passed, do you remind, I mean, do you have a habit of reminding a person, yeah, Three years ago, there was that $100 bill, and I, you see that? I paid it. You know, we don't do that. 
And in forgiveness, you are making a pledge, I think. And I'm not going to bring this up against you again. The only time, the only place that I'll bring it up is in a constructive setting for constructive purposes, ideally with a third party present where we can, sometimes it's necessary to bring it back up again to affect reconciliation, but, but it needs to be done in a constructive way and probably in a controlled environment. Other subtle things we do to exact repayment. I've, I've forgiven you, but I'm going to criticize you behind your back and diminish your reputation in the eyes of other people. I will criticize you without your ever knowing it. I'll, I'll slander or, or gossip against you. You know, I've got four daughters, as, uh, several of whom are teenagers. We talk about gossip a fair, fair bit in our, in our home because it's kind of necessary. And we remind them that gossip can be information that is 100% factually accurate, accurate 100% true. But it, it happens to be information that other people, they don't need to hear. That's a form of exacting repayment, revenge. We will, we will diminish their reputation in the eyes of others. Forgiveness doesn't speak about past debts, generally speaking. Um, and I think that's... That is the glory of this passage. Here's, here's what blew my mind as I studied it this week. I believe, I think, that Joseph never told his father Jacob what his brothers did to him. I mean, you can't be certain of it, but if you look back to the previous chapter, chapter 49, there you, you'll read the story. Jacob is delivering his, his last words to the brothers to his sons. These are words of blessing and cursing. And in this section, he praises their virtues. He praises Judah as the lion who, who has such great strength. And he praises Naphtali for his quickness. He also brings up some of their, their sins and transgressions. He curses the anger of Levi and Simeon. He curses Dan in, insofar as he calls him a serpent for his hostility and aggressiveness. But you go through the list, and what you discover, there's not a single word spoken about the, the greatest and worst sin they ever committed. Not a single word. Then in verse 13, 16 of today, you, the brothers send this message to Joseph. They say that, Father gave this command before he died. Please forgive your brothers so that, or for, for what they did to you. Uh, please forgive them. Jacob said so. When I was reading that, doesn't it sound fishy? <laughs> it sounds like a lie. There's no way that Jacob said this. It's unlikely. I mean, Joseph was by his father's bedside all during his last moments when he was dying. If if Jacob wanted to communicate the message to Joseph, he could have done so any time. Again, it, there's just no indication whatsoever that Joseph ever told him what his, what his father or what his brothers had done to him. And in what, what constructive purpose would it have had anyways? Better to keep silent 
and preserve their reputation because what's been paid has been paid. Robert E. Lee, sometime after the Civil War, was visiting a Kentucky lady at her antebellum estate, and she took him outside, and she showed him the remains of this old, grand, stately, I think it was an oak tree. And he could see, it was easy to see, that this tree it was badly damaged. It was, it was pretty much dead. And, and she recounted to him bitterly how it used to be a beautiful, beautiful tree, and the limbs and the trunk of the tree were destroyed during the war from federal artillery fire. She's telling him the story, and she, she expects that, at the very least, Lee is going to be sympathetic and, and say something sympathizing with my loss, or he'll speak some word denouncing the, those Yankees instead He waits a moment, and then he says, Ma'am, cut it down and forget about it. It's better to forgive the injustices of the past than allow them to remain. It's cut it down and forget about it. Now, we know mentally that there's a psychological impossibility of forgetting certain things. Try your best to forget certain things, and you'll never be successful. And there are certain things that you should should not forget. You ought not to forget. But Lee's point is that, that, ma'am, you've got to forget about it insofar as you've got to keep it from poisoning you. If you allow that to—if you cultivate ill will inside of your soul— if you play the recordings over and over again and watch the videos in your mind and you allow a root of bitterness to grow up in your heart, that is the type of thing that will, that will kill both. The tree's dead and soon you will be too. It'll poison you. One of the, and I've said this before, one of the most wonderful aspects of forgiveness, forgiveness saves two people. It saves them and it also saves you. It saved Joseph. You think Joseph, I mean, he, he was a pretty, I feel bad for him. You do too. He was deeply scarred. He would never be a whole man again for the rest of his life. But at least he wasn't poisoned. At least, he, he, here's a man who could have remained hateful and bitter on the inside. And while there's no way that he could forget what his brothers did to him, there's no way he should forget. By God's grace, you and I can keep from vilifying and demonizing our, our enemy and our opponent inside of our hearts and in our imaginations. Why is that so difficult to do? Especially when we know that the obligation is so crystal clear. Uh, do, we, do we put them in a different category than ourselves? Are they a, a different level sinner? Are they somehow more warped than we are? Maybe it's simply because we don't understand what forgiveness is and is not. Forgiveness, it is canceling a moral debt and you absorbing the cost. It is not uh, approving or diminishing that debt. It's not taking a $1,000 debt and acting like it was nothing. Joseph uh, 
in verse 19, he says, what you did was evil. Evil, the four-letter word. And I, there's no pretending like this never happened and, and it was no big deal. It was, it was evil. There's a sense that to properly forgive, you have to look at the, the full dollar amount C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, he writes that real forgiveness means looking smack dab at the sin with a, and with no excuse and seeing the sin for all of its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice and nevertheless paying that cost. Not excusing it, but paying, not saying it was no big deal, but to forgive is to be aware of just how costly it actually was. Second, Forgiveness does not mean that you trust them afterwards. If my boyfriend or husband hit me, but he said he's sorry, should we just pick up where we left off and keep going? Absolutely not. We say trust is quickly lost, and trust should only very slowly be returned. Should we pick off where we left off? No, the recreation of trust takes time. And the length of time is going to be proportional to the amount of severity of of what has happened. I I showed you this last week that Joseph takes his brothers and puts them through four different tests. The purpose of which was determined, have these guys really changed? I can't remember, what were they? The, The Benjamin test, the, I don't know, Simeon test, the silver cup test, I... I can't remember what I preached a week ago. <laughs> but, but the point of this was to have these guys really change. And here's my suspicion. The, the text never says it. My guess is if, if they hadn't passed those tests, if he had any suspicion that these guys would do the same thing again to a 17-year-old boy, kidnap him and sell him into slavery, then he would have given them what they were due the justice they were due. Uh, no, it doesn't mean, real forgiveness does not mean that you do away entirely with justice. It means that, you, obviously you don't take justice into your own hands. You put it in the hands of those whom, I mean, he says, am I in the place of God? No, justice is, is in God's hands. So you can forgive a teenager and not give them the car keys again. Similarly, you can forgive someone and still call the police and have them arrested. You can forgive someone and still testify them against them in a court of law. There are situations when you should do all of these things. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you neglect all justice. The last one I have, forgiveness, real forgiveness doesn't wait for an apology. Your forgiveness recognizes that you may never get an apology. And you really ought not to make them. You can't make them do anything. You certainly can't make them really come to terms with all that they have done. But God calls you to forgive them in your hearts long before they ever apologize or even if they do never apologize. And you think about it. To forgive somebody who has truly 
either clueless, clueless about what they did to you or unapologetic about what they did, when you forgive a debt that they have not even calculated, there's probably no time in your life that you're being more like Jesus. I mean, parents, when, when you refuse the bitter spirit towards your kids, of course they don't. They're not apologetic, <laughs> usually. But when you pay off that, when you pay that cost, you realize you're being more like Jesus then than probably any other time of the week. This is how Jesus treats you. Because you and I are utterly oblivious to the extent of our of our debts that have been absorbed. So the big news in the Cheney household this week is that Shelton Woods and I are headed to the Fiesta Bowl. <laughs> and the Fiesta Bowl, you know, is the, the University of Arizona Wildcats, my alma mater, playing Boise State, Bear Down, Arizona. You know, I, I'm torn. I'm so torn. Because who do you root for? Your, your alma mater or your, your new community? It's significant that it's the Fiesta Bowl because I grew up in Phoenix and we went to the Fiesta Bowl quite a bit as children. I was at the 1989 Fiesta Bowl between Notre Dame and West Virginia, which was the national championship game that year. Major Harris was the, the quarterback for West Virginia. And if you remember, Rocket Rahib Ishmael was the wide receiver for Notre Dame. And that was, it was an epic game. And I, dad sold golf carts and he donated golf carts to the Fiesta Bowl parade so they would give us tickets in return. I haven't been back to Phoenix in 10 years. It's been a decade since I returned to my original home. And you know how difficult that process can be. I mean, there's so many happy memories that we all have from where we, about where we grew up, but but there's something about returning there and returning to an earlier chapter in your life, a chapter with, with many sins, many happy memories, but many sins of your youth, where you're reminded of, of how many debts Jesus has absolved. So I'm, I can't wait for the game. Can't wait for Sonoran Desert and Sunshine. But I also can't wait for the, the bittersweetness of some of those old memories. Because probably nothing can do my heart better than to remember how much has been paid. And, you know, the, we, you can understand the doctrine of justification by faith, and the, your free forgiveness is a gift of God in Christ Jesus. You can understand that on an intellectual level, but uh, unless you have... A, a deeper understanding of the forgiveness and the grace of God, unless it drops down into your soul, then of course you're not going to be very good at forgiving other people their sins against you or expressing to them the grace of God. What I want for you and for me is that we would be like these brothers. Last point, what is it that the brothers in the story can't believe? What is, what is it in the, in the narrative that it's, this is too amazing for us, it blows our mind, we can't possibly believe, what is it that they can't possibly believe? 
They can't possibly believe that, that this forgiveness is real and true. That Joseph could forgive this much. They're so amazed by it that they they end up having to lie <laughs> to invent this lie because there's just no way any human being on the face of this planet could forgive what he's saying that he's, he's forgiven us. And that's what I want you to feel during this Advent season. I want you to feel that the gospel is the greatest news, the most amazing news you have ever heard in your entire life and is the greatest news that this world has ever heard. And I want you to be so amazed by that that you, you, you feel it. And you face up to your lack of forgiveness of other people, and, and, and you forgive. Cyril of Alexandria was a 5th century church father. He said that we ought to deal with sinners the way that a doctor deals with those who are sick. He asked, can you imagine going into the doctor and he, he's saying to him, doctor, I'm sick. Sick! This is the sixth time. I only treat people who are sick five times. I'm done with you, says the doctor. No, as long as you are sick, a good doctor says, as long as you are sick, I will treat you and serve you and help you toward healing and wellness. The great physician and healer of our souls says, as long as you are sick, (laughs) I will treat you as one who is a sinner in need of forgiveness. And as long as you are a sinner, I will forgive your debts past, present, and future. Have you calculated recently what those might be? 